We're going to be working this morning through Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And we've been, we've been working through a section in Romans, uh, chapters 9 through 11, uh, for the last few, few weeks or so. We've been making a pretty, good, uh, a pretty good clip through it, and we have two more sermons in Romans 9 through 11 after today. So we've got this one and then two more, uh, and that kind of will, will bring some closure to this section of the book of Romans. We'll, we'll uh, you know, spend Advent doing some, uh, probably working through the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, and then after the new year, we'll jump back into Romans chapter 12 through 16 and work through those chapters, hopefully uh, finishing them up and finishing the entire book before uh, Easter. But... Uh, like I said, this morning we're continuing to work through Romans 9 through 11. Who remembers what the, the main idea is of this section of Romans, chapters 9 through, through 11? Anyone remember the main idea or the main theme that Paul is kind of working through in these, these chapters? No pressure if you don't. So, big idea. Paul has been preaching his gospel, right? Um, and Paul's gospel represents a significant departure from the, the, the message that was uh, preached predominantly by much of the, the Jewish religious leaders and, and teachers, right? The, the, the message that you would hear from most of the Jewish religious leaders and teachers in the day was that uh, Israel is good, the rest of the world is bad. Israel has the law, the rest of the world does not. They're lawless pagans. Israel is in covenant relationship with God, the rest of the world is not. They worship idols, right? And that, that kind of distinction, that duality, the, the Israel versus the world is, is uh, comprehensive and it is uh, permanent and it is unchangeable and it is uh, in, indelible, right? Every single ethnically Jewish person is going to be saved and there's nothing that they can do to change that. And every single Gentile person is going to be judged and there is nothing that they can do to, to change that or to be saved. That was kind of the prevailing thought. And then Paul comes preaching something entirely different, which is that every single person all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, all persons stand under the just judgment and condemnation of God because of their sin. All people, Jew and Gentiles, are guilty. And the only way that any person, Jew or Gentile, can be saved is by trusting in Jesus, who died for our sins, satisfied the wrath of God, rose from the dead, invites people to, to trust in, in him. So anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be saved if they trust in Jesus, and no one, Jew or Gentile, is uh, automatically entitled to salvation on the basis of their ethnicity or their, their race or their nationality. Paul came preaching that gospel, and that gospel was upsetting to a lot of the people that, that heard it because... You know, the, the idea that, that there's a Jewish person who could experience God's judgment just because they don't believe some random doctrine. Or the idea that there's some Gentile who could kind of worm his way in and, and kind of, uh, you know, take advantage of the blessings and the, the promises that were made for Israel and not for them was offensive. So the objections came back, you know, how dare you teach something like that? 
right? Paul, you are saying that the word of God has failed, which is an objection that Paul explicitly mentions and deals with in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul, you are saying that God has rejected his people, which is an objection that Paul uh, mentions and specifically deals with in this text, in in chapter 11, verse 1. So Paul is kind of uh, vindicating his gospel and vindicating the God that he is preaching about and taking three chapters to explain why God's word has not failed, God has not rejected his, his people. And he's going to explain that, you know, God never actually promised that, that every single ethnically Jewish person would be saved. You might have inferred that. You might have deduced that. You might have uh, you know, wanted that to be the case, but God never intended that to be the case. God made covenant promises to the nation of Israel as a whole. And the specific nature of those covenant promises was not that every single ethnically Jewish person would be saved. Rather, God was promising that he would not abandon his nation of Israel. And, and specifically, he was promising that there always has been, always will be a, a remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel that God is, is saving and keeping and preserving for them to trust in, in him. So not every Israelite, but there will never be a time when everyone in the nation of Israel walks away from God, right? There, there will always be a remnant of faithful believers all the way until the end. That's kind of what Paul is kind of working through and kind of unpacking in Romans 9 through, through 11. So uh, we're going to read Romans 11 verses 1 through 10 this morning, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time considering it together. It reads, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear all the way down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read your word in our own language. We don't have to you know, travel to some distant country or learn some other language to be able to hear from the God who created us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to possess our own personal copy 
of your word to read whenever we want, the privilege to gather together as your people without fear of persecution so that we can listen to your word. And God, we pray that your word would, would form and, and uh, shape our church. We pray that your word would reverberate out through this church and through all of the members in it and all of the ministries of it. We pray that we would be centered around your word. We pray that we could understand it and apply it and be changed and sanctified and made to be more like Jesus through it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's the big question lingering in the air. Paul, if the gospel that you're preaching is true, then you're effectively saying that God has rejected his people. And Paul says, by no means, which is a phrase that we've seen over and over in the book of Romans, which is a strong denial. It means uh, it means it does not exist. It never came into being. That statement that you just uttered is so uh, absurd and so wrong that it's 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 non-existent. It's I'm not even going to dignify it with a response. It, it's a non-starter. It's probably yeah. The word the phrase non-starter would be a good translation for that. Uh, that Greek word, so he says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, you're accusing me, you're accusing me, Paul, of saying that God has rejected the nation of it. You're accusing me of being anti-Semitic. I am Jewish. I don't hate Israel. And I'm not trying to manufacture some novel doctrine that is embarrassing or inconvenient for the nation of Israel because I am a part of the nation of Israel. I'm Jew. There's an episode of Seinfeld where uh, a guy uh, converts to Judaism and then starts telling all of these Judaism jokes. And Seinfeld gets offended and he's like, I think that guy converted to Judaism. I think that guy's really an anti-Semite. And he just converted to Judaism just so that he can tell Jewish jokes. And Paul is saying, that's not, I'm not, like, I'm I'm a Jewish person. I was born into the nation of Israel. I'm a descendant of Abraham. The the tribe of Benjamin was like, of all of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin was the one that like stayed faithful with the tribe of Judah in the southern region of Israel after the other 10 tribes kind of uh, started to worship other gods and kind of walk away from God. So he's like, I'm a member of this one faithful tribe. Right, of, of elite believers and followers of God. I'm a member of the nation of Israel. I'm not, I don't hate Israel. I love Israel. In fact, if you look at chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, all of them start with Paul reiterating that, right? Chapter, uh, you know, 9 starts with Paul saying, I love Israel so much so that I would literally give, if I could, I would give my salvation to them. Uh, if I could, I would go to hell, I would be cut off from Christ and go to hell for the sake of my brothers in Israel being able to be reconciled to God and go to to heaven. In chapter 10, he says, I pray fervently for the nation of Israel that they would trust Jesus and be saved. And here he says, I am a member of the nation of Israel, right? And so I don't think, I'm not saying that God has rejected his people. In fact, verse 2, he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
That word foreknew, Paul also used that earlier in Romans, back in chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, uh, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, so chapter 8, verses 29 and following are kind of setting up this indelible trajectory, this unbreakable chain that starts way back in eternity past. Those that God foreknew, meaning that God uh, in eternity past looked into the future, looked into time and space that did not yet exist, and sees a person, sees a people that he knows and cares about, and he sets his affections on them. And, and Paul is saying, or when God does that, the, the inevitable Right, unavoidable next step is that he is going to predestine them to know and love and trust and hold fast to and walk with Jesus. And then once God predestines someone in that way, the inevitable, unavoidable next step is that they're going to be called out of their sin. They're going to trust in Jesus and be justified and declared righteous. Their sin will be taken away and forgiven. And then once someone is justified in that way, the inevitable, unavoidable next step is that they will, their faith and their walking with God is going to culminate in them being glorified and brought into the presence of, of God. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. All of those things happen together. One, it, it's, it's, one can't happen without all of the rest of them also falling into place. So, Paul says, that being the case, It's impossible for God to reject his people. God can't reject his people because God's people are the ones that he foreknew, the ones that he then predestined and called and justified. and So so it's, it's not only is it that God will not ever reject his people, he cannot reject his, his people. It won't ever happen. It's an ontological impossibility. Someone might say, all right, well, that, I'm still not convinced. I'm still not convinced that God has not rejected his people because, Paul, the message that you're, right, you're giving this new twist, right? We've always said all Israelites are saved, all Gentiles are judged, and you've got this new twist that says only those people who trust in Jesus are saved. So, so I mean, what, like, how do we know that God is not going to abandon the nation of Israel entirely? How do we know that at some point in the future, all of the people of Israel are going to, how, how do we know that they won't walk away from God? How do we know it hasn't happened already? How do we know that at some point in the Old Testament, uh, there wasn't a time in, in, in the, the darkest days of Israel, in their apostasy and everything else, that, that everyone did not walk away from, from uh, God? Which would effectively mean that God has rejected his people. How do we know that that's never happened? And Paul says, all right, well, like if you want proof that God has not and will not ever reject his people, if you want proof that God has always been saving and keeping a remnant within his nation in accordance with his covenant promises to them, if you want proof, let's do a case study from Israel's history uh, from the days of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. So, uh, Paul is kind of pulling from, 
Uh, the, the, the ministry of Elijah we see in 1 Kings. Uh, we first uh, meet uh, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Now immediately before that, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, we meet uh, a king in Israel, a really bad king, the worst king, uh, king Ahab. He comes into power at the end of chapter 16, and Elijah, his first mention, comes onto the scene at the beginning of chapter 17. So King Ahab, or, so Elijah's ministry was lar- largely took place during the reign of King Ahab. And Elijah was, in a lot of ways, the quintessential Old Testament prophet. He looked and felt and kind of uh, you know, called to mind the ministry of, of John the Baptist. He was kind of this, the classic guy confronting the sin of the people, speaking truth to power, rebuking uh, the nation for their sin, calling them to repentance. And again, this happens right during the reign of King Ahab, who was, by all accounts, the worst. Ki- I mean, you'll hear, you'll, this is election season, right? I get 10 texts a day on my phone. This is the worst, you know, everyone says that the other guy is the worst person that there is. And the worst person, right, like, you know, this is the the worst person to ever hold public office. If they get elected, they'll enact their radical agenda, right? I mean, I've heard that, so the last five presidents, I've heard someone say that they are the worst president our nation has ever had, which is, I mean, unlikely that, like, we get that, we get the worst one five times in a row. But I hear, like, I've never heard once someone say, our current president is from the other party, and I don't really agree with him on a lot of things, but, you know, we've had worse ones. Like, he's probably middle of the pack, not my favorite, because most of my favorites are my party, but not the worst, because we've had some pretty, some pretty bad ones throughout the, the centuries. Never heard that once. Everyone always says, the, guy, the current guy or the guy that they're running, or, he's the worst. God doesn't say that. So, uh, I mean, they might be wrong, they might be right, I'm not sure. But when God says Ahab is the worst king, which he says in the Old Testament, he means it. He doesn't, like, cry wolf and say they're all the worst king. He says Ahab was the worst king that there was. He, he led Israel into idolatry to worship Baal and Asherah and all kinds of false gods. He married this woman named Jezebel who led him to worship even more false gods than he was before. And then he, uh, you know, promptly led the entire nation of Israel to worship more false gods than they have before. So things are in, uh, this, th- Israel is probably in its worst state that it's ever been in during the reign of King Ahab when Elijah comes onto the scene. And one of the first things he does is he says, I'm calling for a drought. Like this, we, things are so bad in the nation of Israel and I need to, to shake you and catch and get your attention. So there's going to be no rain. All of your crops are going to die until I say otherwise. So if you want rain, come talk to me, Elijah. But otherwise, good luck trying to not die in this deadly drought and famine that we're going to have. And it makes Ahab really mad, and it makes Jezebel really mad, and they're, they start to square off, and it all kind of comes to a head at this big, dramatic uh, confrontation on Mount Carmel. Ahab brings all of his priests uh, and prophets of the false gods on his payroll, hundreds of them, and here they all are, and Elijah comes all by himself, just one dude. Hundreds of guys with all of the resources summoned by the king in the royal courts, one guy. 
And so they say, we're going to figure out whose gods are right and whose gods are, are wrong. And what ends up happening is all of those uh, priests of the false gods get embarrassed. Their gods don't listen to them. They don't respond to them. And uh, Elijah prays to God and God responds. And, and Elijah is vindicated and the, God, the true God of Israel is vindicated. And it's this big, dramatic moment, but what it does is it, is it upsets Ahab and Jezebel even more. They wanted Elijah dead before then, and, and, and they really want him dead after then, because he's embarrassed them, he's embarrassed their gods, and he also killed all of their, their, the priests of their, of their gods. And so they really want to kill Elijah, and in 1 Kings 19, immediately on the heels of that dramatic episode, Elijah is running away, and he prays, and he says... Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. If you read the prayer uh, in its entirety, he basically says, I wish I were dead. I, I want to die. That's how bad things are right now. Right? You, God, you have effectively abandoned your people. Right? And, and I am the only one who is faithful to you. I am the only one who's walking with you. Every single person in the nation of Israel has walked away from you. I'm the only one that's left. And God's response is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah, I, I hear you. I get what you're saying. I get that you think that I have uh, abandoned my covenant that I have rejected my people. I get that you think that you are the only person left in the entire nation of Israel who believes my word and is faithful to me. I get that you think that this situation is so dire and so beyond repair that you just want to die because you don't see any viable way forward. I get that you think that, but I have not rejected my people. And in fact, not only are you not the only one who is still faithful to me in the nation, there are thousands, 7,000 other faithful believers that you know nothing about. You think that I've rejected my people. You think that everyone has walked away from me. It's not true. I have been working in ways that you could not see, did not have access to, were not privy to. I have not rejected my people. I have, always have been, always will be, saving and preserving a remnant of faithful believers uh, among my, my people. That's Elijah's prayer and God's answer in 1 Kings 19. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out two quick points of application from that prayer and that answer that are, I think, particularly relevant and helpful for us before we, we move on to so two points of application from this incident with Elijah, this prayer and this answer to Elijah's prayer. One is, even in the midst of suffering, even in the worst suffering that we, could, that we have ever experienced in our lives, even in the midst of suffering, we are still enjoying incredible grace from God, blessing from God, and so we need to acknowledge it and we need to be grateful for it. Even in the midst of suffering, God is still blessing us, taking care of us, and we need to uh, thank him for, for it, right? Elijah looks at his circumstances and says, 
This is terrible. This is the worst. I want to die, right? God has forgotten me. God has abandoned me. Things are awful. They couldn't get any worse. I want to give up. I want to, I, my life is over. I just want to end it right now. Which, on any given day, depending on what we may or may not be experiencing circumstantially, might sound familiar to us. Right? Real, I mean, just kind of imagine the worst day that you've had in the last week, the last month, the last year, right? And you're, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? Kids are up all night, no sleep, you're late for work, you miss a deadline, traffic is backed up, you, whatever, right? Like, re- relationships are, are in disrepair, you're in a fight with people in your, your, whatever it is, right? Like, the worst day that you could possibly imagine when things can't get any worse and it makes you literally say, I'm at the end of my rope and I want to give up, I, I, I would rather not be alive than, than have to experience this kind of, of uh, chaos and suffering in my life, which is how Elijah felt. But the reality is that even on those days when everything is going wrong and everything is breaking down, if Elijah was being honest, he was, God was blessing him and providing for him. I mean, in that very chapter, in chapter 19, God is providing for him in supernatural ways. And even us, on our worst days, God is providing for us, blessing us, taking care of us. Right? If, you're, if your kids are up all night, praise God that you have a family and that they're alive and healthy. Praise God that you have a home that's safe and warm to sleep in. If you're late for work, praise God that you have a job and that God has given you the ability to work and earn and provide. If you hit traffic on the way to work, praise God that you have a car. Most people in the world don't own a car. Right? Elijah is, you know, Elijah says, things are bad. I'm suffering. They're as bad as they could possibly be. And that kind of things are as bad as they could possibly be thinking fails to take into account all the ways that God has and is blessing us and taking care of us and treating us better than we deserve to be treated. And we remember that, right? When we remember all of the ways that God has blessed us and is taking care of us and is treating us better than we deserve to be treated, then we realize that things may not be going perfectly, it would be better if my kids slept through the night. It would be better if there was no other cars on the road. It would be better if, you know, whatever. Right? All of the things that are going badly, it would be better if they weren't. But the life that I'm living is far better than the life that I deserve. God is treating me far better than I deserve. God is blessing me in countless ways because he is good. And I can be grateful to him for that. That's one point of application. Even in the midst of suffering, God is blessing us and taking care of us, and so we need to acknowledge that, and we need to be grateful for it, instead of feeling entitled to it and resenting God for not giving us all of the other things that we want to. And the second point of application is that God is always at work, even when you don't see it happening. God never 
slumbers, he never sleeps, he is always at work, he is always keeping his promises, and more often than not, God is keeping his promises in ways that you can't see, don't see, that you know nothing about, right? Elijah, all is lost, the prophets are dead, everyone's turned away, there's no one left, I'm the last one here, they're trying to kill me, and God says, hey, like, do you know for a fact that you are the only person worshiping God in the entire nation? Have you spoken with every single person in the nation of Israel? You haven't, right? You think that you're the only one that's left still worshiping me, but there are things happening in my nation that you know nothing about. I've got thousands of people that you are not aware of, never met, don't even know that they exist, and they are worshiping me just like you are. You've been assuming that I have abandoned you and rejected my people, but the whole entire time I've been working in ways that you were not aware of, keeping my promises and taking care of you. So if you ever feel like God is not listening to you, or like God is not answering your prayers, If you ever feel like God is letting something happen that he should never have let happen, and if he were there, if he cared, if he were listening, then that would not have happened that way. Things would have happened differently. That's exactly how Elijah felt. And God rebukes him and says, that's just not true. Right? You think that I am indifferent. You think that I am malevolent. You think that I have gone back on my word, that I've rejected my people. I have not. I'm here, I always have been here, I care about you, and I am working to keep my promises to you, not necessarily in the way that you might want me to, not necessarily in the way that you would have expected me to, not necessarily even in any ways that you can see with your, with your eyes, but I am working in ways that are best for you. It was true of Elijah, and that's true of us. if you pray for something and it takes longer for God to answer your prayers than you would have liked the reality is that God hears you, he's listening to your prayers and he's working to answer your prayers on his timing rather than on your own when you share the gospel with a friend or a family member and they reject it and they tell you to not bring that up with them again in that moment it might look as if God has failed, but he has not failed. God is, God is working in ways that you might not be aware of to accomplish his purposes. I, I think maybe every single person that I know, but certainly most of the people that I know who came to Christ later in life as adults, they came to Christ as the result of lots and lots of uh, points of exposure to Christians and, and gospel conversations with, with Christians that happened over a long period of time. And each of those conversations played a different role in moving that person from a firmly committed, you know, dead set unbeliever who would never become a Christian, moving them from there all the way to someone who trusts in Jesus. And some of those conversations along the way seemed to go pretty well. Share the gospel, and it appears like this person's receptive, and praise God. Some of them did not go that way. I've had conversations with people who, I found out later, have come to know Christ, that those conversations with them did not go well. 
and it looked like they wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with me as someone sharing the gospel with them. But God was using those conversations to work in his timing in that person's heart to bring them to himself. So God is working in ways that you can't always see. Just because you can't see the ways that God is working doesn't mean that he is not looking after you, not taking care of you, not um, keeping his promises to you. It just means that he's doing it in a way that you can't see. So those are two, two points of application I wanted to point out before we move off of Elijah. One, even in the midst of suffering, we are all still enjoying incredible grace from God, so we need to take time to remember that and be thankful for it. And two, God is always at work, often in ways that we cannot see. So we need to trust him to work as he sees fit on his timeline. Now, back to Paul and his use of this situation from Elijah in Romans chapter uh, 11. He's using it to make a theological point. He's using it to support his thesis that God has not rejected his people. Right? He says, here was another time in the past when it looked as if God had rejected his people, but he hadn't. He was working, he was saving, preserving, and keeping a remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel. And then verse, time, verse 5, so too, just like then, so too, now at the present time, there is also a remnant of faithful believers who trust God. There is a remnant who is chosen by grace. A remnant in Elijah's day, centuries before Jesus was born. Remnant in Paul's day, decades after Jesus' death. And the, the thrust of Romans 9 through 11 seems to say that there will always be a remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel all the way until when Jesus returns. Verse 6, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So just reiterating the case he's been building the whole time, that people are saved not by their works, not by their religion, not by their effort, not by their merit, not by their nationality or their race. People are saved by God's grace when they trust in Christ. You're not saved because you're Jewish. You're not saved because you grew up in a Christian house. You're not saved because you're a citizen of Israel. Or Rome, centuries later. Or America, now. Right? You're saved by grace, through faith, when you trust in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you on the cross. Anything other than that, and grace would no longer be grace. Anything other than that, and the gospel would no longer be the gospel. Verse 7. He says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Meaning that the nation of Israel was seeking to be the recipient of God's grace and favor and salvation and his covenant blessings. That's what they wanted, that's what they were seeking, but they did not obtain it. Or at least not all of them, not every single individual one of them attained it. Every single ethnically Jewish person did not obtain the salvation and covenant blessings of God that they were seeking. And then he qualifies. He says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Israel, 
on the whole, every single person, 100%, they, they didn't bat a thousand, every single ethnically Jewish person did not obtain what they were seeking. The elect within them did. So, so batting a thousand among the elect, the remnant of faithful believers, but the rest were hardened. The rest were um, made to where they could not see the glory of, of Christ. Right? So you've, within the old covenant nation of Israel, it's this mixed entity of all of them are ethnically Jewish, all of them are members of the physical nation of Israel, but only some of them are, you know, Paul uses the language, were not only Jews outwardly, but also Jews inwardly. So they were not merely members of the physical nation of Israel, but they were also members of this remnant of faithful believers, the true spiritual Israel, the people of, of God. And the rest were hardened and did not trust God and did not believe the gospel. And then verses 8 and following are Paul looking at these Old Testament verses as examples of members of the nation of Israel who uh, are hardened and darkened and turn away from God, turn away from the gospel, and don't obtain the salvation and the covenant blessings that they were, were seeking. He starts with Isaiah 29, verse 10. He says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Isaiah 29 is the prophet Isaiah prophesying against the city of Jerusalem, right, saying that there are going to be enemy powers that come against you, hostile militaries that come against you, and they are going to come and they are going to attack you, and their attacking is actually going to be God's judgment and God's wrath coming down on you because of your sin. And another form of judgment that you're going to experience, this is Isaiah saying to the nation of Jerusalem, so not only is it going to be foreign nation military powers, but another form of judgment that you're going to experience is that your hearts will be hardened. God will give you a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. They will be darkened so that they cannot see the glory of Christ, so that they cannot embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Some will accept him. The remnant of faithful believers will accept Christ, but the vast majority of the nation of Israel will reject Jesus, and their eyes will be darkened so that they cannot see him as their promised Messiah. That was, that was Isaiah's uh, prediction. That was Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 29, and Paul is drawing on it and saying, that's exactly what I, he's, he's, he prophesied exactly what I'm saying is the case. That a significant portion of the nation of Israel would be hardened and darkened and unable to trust in Christ, unable to see Christ as their Messiah. And then he quotes Psalm chapter 69, verses 22 to 23. He says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In Psalm 69, David is, is an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory psalm. So he's praying about his enemies. He's praying about the persecution that he's experiencing at their hand, right? I'm sinking in deep water. People hate me. People are trying to hurt me. People are trying to kill me. And then he prays that God would bring down judgment upon his enemies who are persecuting him. He says, I pray that all the good things that they have, all their possessions, all their comfort, their security, their food, I pray that it would all become a snare and a, a, a trap. 
I pray that their eyes would be darkened so that they cannot see. That's David praying about his enemies who are persecuting him. And Paul is saying that prayer that David prayed about his enemies is exactly what has happened to so many within the nation of Israel. They are experiencing the exact thing that David was wishing on his worst enemies, that their eyes would be darkened and that they could not see the glory of their Messiah. All of the good things, right, the, the, the table, all of the good things that God has given Israel, the patriarchs, the forefathers, the promises, the blessings, the law, the special relationship with him, all of those good things have become a snare and a trap and they have stumbled over They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've stumbled over, over them. And so now, for the vast majority of the nation of Israel, right, apart from the ones that are the remnant of the faithful believers, other than those, the rest of them have been darkened. They cannot see the glory of Christ. They can love their nation, they can love the law, they can love the temple, they can love the sacrifices, they can love the idea of being Jewish, but they can't see the glory of Christ. They can't trust in him as their Messiah. So that's Paul talking about and, and, and kind of unpacking the question, has God rejected his people? And his answer is a full-throated no, God has not rejected his people. You might think that he has, but he's not. He's always been saving and preserving and keeping a remnant of faithful believers. And as for the rest of the nation of Israel, their hearts have been darkened so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. Which admittedly is a tough pill to swallow. And kind of leaves us with the lingering question of, why would God do that? Why would God allow for even, even some small portion of, let alone the vast majority of the nation of Israel, why would God allow for them to reject the Messiah? Why would God allow for their hearts to be darkened so that they cannot see the glory of Christ? Why would God do that? And the answer to that, you have to come back next week, because we're going to we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, but because I'm a nice guy, we're going to sneak preview. The, the re, like God allows for so many within the nation of Israel to reject the Messiah and to have their hearts hardened and darkened against the Messiah so that when that happens, that kind of triggers, that initiates this next phase in the redemptive history that God has arranged, which is that the gospel will then uh, go out beyond the borders of the nation of Israel, out into the world, out into the, to the Gentiles, right? I mean, theoretically, if Jesus had come to the nation of Israel and they had embraced him with open arms, right, the teachers, religious, religious leaders had believed him and bowed their knee to him as their Messiah, theoretically, if that had happened then the gospel would have never gone to the Gentiles. Paul would have never gone on his missionary journeys and planted churches. Paul would have never written the book of Romans. And you and I would not be Christians right now. So God sovereignly allowed 
for many of the people in the nation of Israel to reject the gospel so that the Gentiles could hear the gospel, so that they could be saved by Christ, welcomed in to the people of God to share in those blessings along with the remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel, Jew and Gentile together, so that they can believe the gospel together, remember the gospel together, celebrate the gospel together as the people of God. So we're going to look at next week. And it's also, coincidentally, what we do when we come to the Lord's table. We remember the gospel together. We remember that God has purposed to save his people, beginning with the nation of Israel and then going out to the entire world. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out so that we, his people, can be reconciled to God. And we remember that, and we trust in Jesus together, and we enjoy his mercy together. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So we're going to celebrate communion. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you are a member of the people of God, then we invite you to celebrate communion with us. Jason's going to come up and lead us in some, some music. And then come forward down the middle aisle, receive the elements, head back to your seats down the sides, and just take a moment. Take a moment to pray. Take a moment to remember the sufficiency of Jesus to save you from your sins. Take a moment to confess your sin to Jesus. Take a moment to receive the grace that he offers to you. And then eat and drink. And if you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in him so that he will save you and keep you forever and ever. Pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus came, lived, died, was raised from the dead to save us from our sin. We thank you that you have been working out the salvation of your people from eternity past, your perfect plan to save your people to call out a nation from which their Savior would come, to see to it that there would always be a remnant of faithful believers within that nation, and then for allowing the good news of the gospel to go out to the entire world so that Gentiles like us can hear the gospel and believe it and be saved by Jesus. We thank you for your perfect, sovereign grace. And we love you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.